0: We're going to talk about something today that that hopefully uh, you can relate to. Um, I shared with you last week uh, on the 11th of this month, uh, I went down to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I had it scheduled for about six weeks to go down there, visit with my daughter who's going to to, uh, Grand Canyon University down there. And so I was just planning on going down, spending two and a half days there, 11th and coming home on the 13th hanging out with her, and, uh, and then coming back. And uh, I shared with you last week while I was down there, she kind of had a health issue that had come up, and so they wanted to do surgery, but surgery was scheduled for the 16th. And so uh, on the day I was supposed to go home on the 13th, um, I had to make some quick changes, and so I just kind of, you know, prayed about it and said, well, God, we'll see what happens and see if I can figure out a way to stay here longer. And so basically for me, it involved a few things. It involved uh, a place to stay, which was... That was all easy. That was worked out. We were staying with some, I was staying with some friends there. So they were like, sure, you can stay. And uh, so next was getting my uh, airplane flight uh, change, which went online and that was easy. The third thing was my car. I had a rental car. And um, so I had booked it with kind of a third party service online and it was great, got a good price, everything. I was just warned like don't change anything about your reservations or they'll just kill you with, you know, all sorts of additional fees. So the advice I got was um, just to take the car back when I was scheduled to take it back to the airport and then to get another car um, to start fresh and do that. I was staying with some friends who were like we can get you a car for nothing just for taxes, that's it. So that was all great. Um, So I took the car back and uh, got a new car and they were they were really busy And so I you know just kind of went in and they're like what car do you want? I'm like take that one got the car drove off Um Went through the day, uh, next morning got up and uh, got in the car and I was going to go down to Starbucks. I just never do that so I wanted to do something different. And I go down to Starbucks in the morning and uh, work on a few things. And so I got in the car and I'm in Phoenix, it's very sunny. And as I'm pulling out of the driveway, I look down in the corner down here and I see a little chip in the windshield. Alright, so a couple of things you need to know about me. First of all, um, I'm just slightly uh, OCD and, uh, and I really… Uh, I become very obsessed about things. So I see this and the first thing I'm thinking is, uh, okay let's see, uh, no this was uh, the very first time I didn't purchase uh, insurance on the vehicle. Like true story, I always get third party insurance. I didn't do it this time. I was talking to a friend, we're like, hey, he's like, how many times have you rented a car? I'm like, I don't even know. He's like, have you ever had an issue? I'm like, never had an issue, never. So of course I get in the car the next morning and I see this chip. Now I'm like, I don't know, was it, was it there yesterday? I don't remember, you know, t- rock coming and flying. And, but all All I could think was, oh man, they're going to kill me for this. They're going to, they're going to want a windshield and they're going to want to repaint the car and rotate the tires. You know, I'm just in my mind. I'm going to Starbucks and all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I'm driving there. I get there and I sit down with my, uh, with my mocha and my Bible. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading the passage we're going to look at today. And it struck me. I thought, you know what? This is a, this is a trial. This is a, this is a test because God knows what I'm like and how obsessive I can get. But I'm here to be with my daughter and to support my daughter. She doesn't need a dad who's focused on the windshield and, oh no, what's going to happen? And I just need to let it go, right? Because whatever it is, I'll take it back. And whatever they're going to do, they're going to do anyways. So I just prayed about it. And I'm like, God, I'm letting it go. I'm passing this test. Ha ha ha. Like, right? Not going to bother me. So as I'm driving through the day, right, I, I notice it starts growing, Right? So, like, you know, I'm driving and I can look down. I try not to look because I'm trying to be a man of faith. I'm looking down. It's getting a little bigger, right? By the end of the day, you know, it's about this big. I'm doing the whole quarter. Is it size of a quarter? What are they going to do? Oh, no. You know, what are they going to do? And it's going to go on my permanent record and, you know, all this stuff. And so I'm just trying, though. I'm like, I'm going to go out with, take my daughter out for the evening. Like, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to obsess on it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, right? So, anyways, I get through the day. Monday, Monday, get up in the mo- early in the morning, take my daughter to the hospital. She has surgery. Um, we're in the hospital for quite a while. Later in the, in the afternoon, late afternoon, um, they, they're going to release her and I could take her uh, back to her uh, apartment. And so they said, you know, go get your car and pull around to the front and pick her up. Like, awesome. So I go outside. You know, it's 103 outside. I'll go outside. Go to get in the car. The crack is almost all the way across the windshield. Like, i just been sitting in the hospital all day. I'm like, Just looking at it like I can, I'm, not going to look at it. Not, but I can't help it. It's right in front of me. I like can't see anything, hear anything. All I could see is the, the just, you know, and I just imagine when I get back to the car rental place, it's going to be handcuffs for me. Like the whole thing, like what did you do to the window? What were you up to? And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm driving around the hospital parking lot. I'm trying not to stare at it, but I can't just fixate on it. And my heart's pounding. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up to the front. I'm going to pick up my daughter who just had surgery. Like the last thing she she needs to hear about is how freaked out I am by the windshield. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let it go. And I'm gonna breathe deep. And I'm gonna pass this test. And I'm not gonna worry. And I'm not gonna stress. Right? So I go around. I pick up my half-sedated daughter. She gets in the car. And the first thing she says is, Dad, what did you do to the window? You know? I'm just like, oh my gosh. So anyways, I'm trying not to think about it. But you can't drive and not see it. And so, you know, the whole time it's, I don't know if you've ever been there where like you're, I know it's a test. I know what I need to do. I know I need to relax. I know I need to trust God. Because here's the thing. I'm going to get on the airplane tonight. I was taking a late flight home. I'm going to get on the plane. Everything's going to be done. Right? Here's what I know. And you've probably experienced this. It's going to be whatever it's going to be. I just don't want to get on the plane and look back and go, I missed being connected with my daughter because of a dumb windshield. Right? You ever been there? So I just, anyways, got my daughter settled. uh, Drove the, you know, drove the car back. Had to catch flight. Sure enough, I pull into the car rental place. I pull in. It's like, everybody working there, they're like, oh, you know, like when I drive in, they're all pointing to the windshield, you know. Get out. Sure enough, they hassle me about it, you know. Big deal. What'd you do? Where were you? You know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, just, I gotta get my flight. You know, they're like, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll charge you. We'll put a lien on your house. That'll be fine. And uh, I get on the plane. But I got on the plane. Now, the, the end of the story is that the friend who rented me the car, he's a pro, man. He ended up talking to him. They didn't charge us anything. Everything was fine. I was all like, but when I was on the plane, I remember just thinking, looking back and going, see, I knew it was a test. I knew what I needed to do. I needed to be present with my daughter. I needed not to be worried about it. I needed to just accept the peace of God. So here's the thing. Life is full of trials like that. Sometimes they're little. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes we make them bigger than they probably ought to be. But this is life. Life has trials. And as we come to the the second message in James, this is what he's going to talk to us about today. Life has trials. It's part of life for all of us. Now, we talked to you about this last week when we introduced James. Uh, in case you weren't here, James was Jesus' little brother. Probably the uh, oldest of the siblings after Jesus. We know that uh, when he was young, um, he didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, we're told when Jesus was doing his ministry that his family thought he was literally mental and they tried to do an inter- you know, intervention and take him home and get him some counseling and and eventually jesus is crucified and after the crucifixion jesus appears specifically to james that's what paul tells us and james in turn believes in his big brother and reorients his entire life about around his big brother jesus Uh, becomes the senior pastor of the church headquarters in jerusalem and writes a book of the new testament And we talked last week about the fact that James, even though he wasn't believing in Jesus when he was a kid and growing up, he was experiencing all all sorts of things that later on in life became very important to him. He He got to see Jesus grow up, and James got to be a part of that before... He, Jesus had any disciples or became famous. He, he probably, knowing how small houses were back then, probably shared a bedroom with Jesus, ate meals with him, played with him, went to school with him, went to synagogue on the weekends and worshiped with him and, and saw Jesus work a job as a carpenter for years. But one thing that he would have seen is he would have also seen Jesus face hard days and, and face trials and, and deal with rejection and persecution and sadness. And all of this really makes an impression. It makes a mark on James. Now the theme of the book of James we're saying is, is faith works. What we mean is this, that faith that has the power to save you is faith that will absolutely change you. And so you don't have to guess if you're saved. If you have saving faith, God will work in you in, in ways that you will know. And, and it will also impact the way you face hard days and how you think about hard days, and and how you react and talk. Like think, how do you talk about difficult circumstances in your life? How do you, what's your attitude when you're going through hard things? What James is going to tell us is faith impacts that. It it changes that. Now James is going to tell us that life is hard sometimes. And would you agree with that? It's like, yeah, yeah, everyone's like, amen, all right? See, but Christianity is not, it's, this isn't the story. It's not like, well, before Jesus, your life was hard, and then you became a Christian, and, and everything got easy, and you never had any more problems, and it's all comfy, and then you get to go to heaven. In fact, sometimes you'll hear preachers or sermons or read books from Christians who will tell you that if God is pleased with you, then your life will be perfect and you'll have lots of money and you'll have hair and, you know, when you get, and sometimes they'll tell you if you get close, the closer you get to Jesus, the less problems you'll have and the less trials and temptation and and financial issues. And yet, Scripture tells us something extremely different. In 2 Timothy, in fact, It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They'll have difficult situations in life. The Christian life is the best life, but it's not the easiest life. Sometimes the closer you get to Jesus, the more troubles, the more rejection, the more trials you'll face. And so James wants to help us. This is something all of us can relate to. So he's going to begin by talking to us about what we're going to call the irrational call, if you will, the irrational call. So he's gonna begin, we're starting in verse two of chapter one, verse two, three, and four today. And he starts this way. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So now we want to remember who he's writing to. He's he's writing to a group of people in verse one that he calls the dispersion. These are, these are Jewish Christians. They had lived in Jerusalem at one time Uh, They had believed in Jesus and they began to be persecuted for their faith. By other Jews. They're not being persecuted by the Roman Empire yet. That's going to come a little bit later. Right now it's by fellow Jews. And so some of them were told had to flee for their lives. They had to leave their jobs. Leave their homes. Leave their friendships. Their relationships. And they, some of them had to flee to other parts of the, of the Roman Empire. Places where kind of outposts where other Jews lived. So they didn't get to live in Jerusalem. They didn't get to live in that place where all the other Christians were. They fled their living on their own. In kind of outposts. And, and they're Jewish Christians. And they move away and they're still being persecuted. So they move to a new place. They, they, have, they had to leave their home. Had to leave their family. And now they're being persecuted again. These are people who have hard lives. They have plenty of trials. And all of this is because of their faith. And so James, Pastor James, writes him a letter. And the, the thing he says in the second verse is here. He says, you guys should count it all joy. Right? Which seems... Very counterintuitive to us. Because for most of us, the goal for us today was just to avoid trials. Like most of us don't wake up in the morning and go, I wonder how I can meet some trials today. Most of us are thinking, I wonder how I can avoid some trials today. You know, we want to avoid hard days. We don't want rejection. We don't want uncomfortable situations. We don't want windshields that crack halfway across. No, we, we, this is the stuff we avoid. Sometimes unknowingly. But we don't look for it, we avoid it. And so here's what he says. He says, count it all joy. Now that word count is a, is a great word. I'm so glad he used the word because the word count or consider in some of your translations is a much stronger word than it sounds like. It literally means to lead or to command something or to rule over something. That's what it means. In other words, what he's saying is this. Joy is not a natural human response to trouble. So we have to decide or command ourselves to go there. Right? Don't you love it? Doesn't this already sound like a sermon you want to hear? Like, okay, so James says, you're gonna on a regular basis face things that you don't like, and I want you to command yourself to go there with joy. Again, different, most of us want to push back, or we want to be bitter about it, right? We want to complain and gripe to people, or maybe we just, we'll, we'll just grudgingly endure it, or maybe we'll just try to ignore it. Instead, what he says is, lead yourself, command yourself, this is great, into joy. Now let me tell you a few things James is not saying here. First of all, he's not saying that the trial itself is a joyful thing. He's not saying, you know, when you lose your job, that's a good, well maybe some jobs, but most jobs, no. He says that's not a, that's not a good thing. When a loved one becomes ill, That's not joyful when when we're sinned against, when we're rejected, when we face failure. He's not saying the trial itself is a joyful thing. He's also not telling us to enjoy our trials. He's not saying, you know, really spiritual people enjoy cancer. That's not what he's saying here. And he's also not commanding a joyful emotion. This is important. He's not saying, so here's the deal. When you're going through a difficult situation, what I want you to do is go to church and put on your fake plastic Christian smile and just pretend that everything is is good. That's not what he's saying. And in fact, I want to mention here because sometimes we... We kind of confuse the idea of happiness and joy. And um, maybe just in a broad sweeping um, way, because this becomes important in the weeks to come. If we could just differentiate a little bit between happiness and joy. A lot of times when we talk about happiness, what we're talking about is how we feel in favorable circumstances. In other words, if you study for a test and you get an A, you'll probably be happy And that's good, but it's temporary because, you know, you're going to have another test. And chances are a year from now you're not going to wake up and remember that you got an A on your history test. But you'll enjoy it for a few days and that will be good. But if your boss gives you a promotion, you know, you'll be happy about that until you actually have to start doing the job. It'll be temporary. Happiness comes, happiness goes. Happiness is rooted in circumstances. So maybe some of you today are here and you're super happy, all right? Because you've had some great circumstances. You could be like me. Uh, I had a good day and then we adopted a cat yesterday. So our circumstances change. I'm not so happy today. Happiness comes, happiness goes. Biblical joy is different. Biblical joy is rooted in God himself, not in our circumstances. So our joy doesn't come and go. Our joy is rooted in God who is immutable, who never changes. And you see interesting examples of this, like in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17, just a verse in the Old Testament that's very interesting, kind of brings this out to us. Habakkuk says this, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, uh, the produce of the olive fail and the, f- the fields yield no food. So he's talking to an agrarian society. If, if you don't have crops, you're in trouble, right? And he, so he's saying here, even though all this stuff, even though you have unfavorable circumstances and though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the salt, See, these are, all, these are all bad circumstances. No, notice what he says. Yet I will rejoice, So see, there's something different there. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What Habakkuk says is, even if your circumstances are difficult, they're not favorable, you might not be happy about those, but you can still have joy because you have a God who loves you and cares about you. So James kind of calls us to what we would call an irrational call. And the second thing he wants us to know is that he's calling us to something that we would say is a when, not if Situation. Now here's what I mean by that in verse 2 he says now when you meet Consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds Now I don't know how many of you were hoping for an if like he would write if you meet trials right? If you have but that's not what he says He says trials are a sure thing so don't be shocked when you go through a trial don't you know don't say you know Why is this happening to me? Why is it always happening to me instead what he's he's saying this is going to happen to you on a regular basis Now the word trials here is a word that means testing or or proving sometimes it's translated as temptation But the word itself is neutral. It's neither good nor bad It always depends on the context and here he's talking about trials of Various kinds now that word various again is a great word. It literally means uh, many colored or many faceted So what he's saying he's talking about trials that are diverse that are varied some are big some are small small different colors if you will. Uh, Kind of fill it out this way. I have this in your notes but what he's saying is this. Trials come in many shapes and many shades and in many degrees. Sometimes trials are financial. Sometimes they're emotional or health issues or spiritual or mental but there's many different kinds of trials. Second thing is that trials have many Causes And so I I find myself oftentimes getting in conversations with people and they'll be like, you know I'm going through this and I don't know what I did wrong You know many times. It's not because you did anything wrong Sometimes you go through trials because we live in a messed up sin infected world And so our world has also, you know, there's hurricanes and you know all sorts of stuff And this is all because of the fall It's not really because, you know, you did something yesterday that God didn't like that he caused a hurricane. It's because we live in a messed up world. Sometimes we go through trials because other people do sinful things. Have you ever had that? Like you're going through a trial because someone else did something dumb or something sinful. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's because of our sin or our foolish decisions. Or sometimes it's because we're boldly living out our faith. So trials have many causes. Third thing, not every Christian will suffer every kind of trial or every degree. So it's not like God has a checklist in heaven and the goal is to get you through everything on the checklist. Some of you will go through certain kinds of trials that others won't. You know, sometimes maybe some of you are like, I feel like I go through way worse trials than other people and that could actually be true or it could just be you. But we don't all go through the same trials to the same degree. And the fourth thing is this, no Christian is exempt from trial. So he's just, he's saying, we're all going to go through trials. It's part of life. Jesus said this. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, he says, you have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Well, here's another thing he talks about. He wants to talk about the, uh, what we're going to call the rationale behind the irrational call which is what he gives us here. And he says this. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now that word know that he gives us there is, it's an interesting word. The Greek word is gnosis. Um, We get the word gnosticism from it, if you're familiar with that. Basically what he means here is uh, knowing something um, intellectually, but also knowing it experientially. And so what he's going to talk about here is this idea of, of, of knowing something here and knowing something here as well. And what is it that he wants us to know? He wants us to know that trials are a test. Now a test can be a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on how prepared you were for the test, right? So if you have a test at school or if you got to take a test at the DMV or at work, if you prepared for the test and if you passed the test, then that was probably a good thing. you were you're were probably encouraged and you're know, you probably happy and there were some benefits because hopefully you learned some things that you will remember and it increased some knowledge. But here's what he wants you to know. Spiritual tests, which is what we're talking about, are not just a gauge so they don't just you know tell you where you're at spiritually. They also become an opportunity or or a catalyst if you will And joy comes from knowing that the various trials we face can benefit us Spiritually, so a couple things that he wants to point out to us here The first is this he's gonna tell us that uh, testing produces spiritual what I'm gonna call spiritual toughness here. So here's what he says in verse three. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, and what's the word there? Steadfastness, all right? So that's not a word we use a lot in our culture. You know, in a lot of translations, it's, uh, you, you get the word patience, and that's sometimes what the word is translated as. The focus here, though, is not on patience, but the product of patience, so let's think of it this way there's patience and then patience produces something and what it produces is steadfastness so let me see if I can explain it this way patience is a temporary thing that you have maybe in your spiritual toolbox that you pull out when you need it if if you have it in there so you don't need to be patient all the time. You do need to be patient often in the middle of testing. Like maybe you're, in a, you're being tested and there's somebody who's annoying you and that's the test and you need to be patient or you need to wait for God or wait for whatever it is. So when you go through trials, you often kind of need to pull out patience and have that in that situation. And then when the trial's over, Maybe you don't need patience anymore at that moment. Steadfastness is the product of patience. It, it becomes uh, a permanent part of your character. You just increasingly become a steadfast person. The idea is somebody who's so rooted in their faith that they just become stronger. They become spiritually tough, if you will. Some translations will translate uh, this word steadfastness as perseverance or fortitude or endurance or I like toughness. I think that's a good one. And here's, here's how it works. We develop toughness through repeated testing and through repeated prevailing. And the more Tests that we enter into and the more that we pass the tougher our faith becomes. So I could did, Maybe I could give you this illustration when the first 49 years of my life um, One of my unstated goals was I would do everything I could to avoid having to run in any situation I didn't like running. I didn't enjoy running. It wasn't fun I thought runners were weird so you know for 49 years I didn't want to run and then when I was 49 I thought you know I'm getting old I'm getting decrepit I got to get some exercise and and running seemed like the cheapest way I only need a pair of shoes and so anyways I got a little program and I got started in running now here's what I'll tell you when I started running and I wish it was just when I started but it's I still experience this today. Sometimes I don't want to run. Like sometimes I'm just tired and I'd rather sit on the couch. Sometimes I'm just busy. Sometimes I have too many things to do that day and it's very inconvenient for me to figure out how I'm gonna not do something so that I can go for a run. If sometimes I just feel like I don't have the energy. Sometimes I'll think I just I don't have five miles in me today. I just don't. But here's what I've experienced. When I choose to run anyway, when I'm feeling those things and I choose to do it anyways, every time I do that, I'm building a kind of toughness, if you will. I'm building a a mental pattern of not giving up. Uh, And each time I run, I find I grow a little bit stronger physically, but also, for me at least, mentally And that's a big part of the game for me is to build mental toughness to know even if I don't feel like I can do it I actually probably can. I just need to make the time and to go do it And and this is kind of what he's talking about here Like if you let's say you're in a relationship and that relationship gets hard And and your pattern is when a relationship gets hard. You just walk away Right? And then you get in another one, and it's good, and then it gets hard, and you walk away, and you walk away. Or let's say you have a job, and, and you have this job, and one day your job gets, gets really hard, and you decide, I don't like this job, and you quit that job, and you get another job, and you work it until it gets hard, and then you quit that job. Like, let's say that's your pattern, or you do that at school, you know, or, or maybe you go to church, And then eventually, you know, you're like, I like this church. And then there's conflict or there's a sermon you don't like or a whole series or whatever it is. And and you just decide, I'm just going to quit and go to another church. And that's your pattern. Or if you share your faith with someone and they push back and you shut down and that's the way you do it. Guess what doesn't happen? You don't prevail and you don't mature and you don't get toughness. Like that's what he's saying here. He's saying you stick with it. In fact in Romans 5 3 it tells us this He says we rejoice in our suffering sounds a lot like what James is saying here knowing that suffering produces endurance or toughness You know when I was growing up in uh, Orange County, California uh, every springtime I would become fascinated because and All of a sudden, in the backyard, I would find on the fences and stuff there'd be little chrysalises, right? the, the caterpillars would go up and they'd make a little chrysalis. And the, I don't know why, as a kid, those are so fascinating to me. So I used to like to get jars or make a little cage, and I'd you know get those, uh, get the twig or whatever, and put it in there. And I'd go out every day and just kind of watch it. And maybe you, you've done that. And then the day comes when the butterfly starts to break out. You, you know this story? It starts to break out, and it's kind of... and I would sit there and watch it. And every now and then, I would think, you know, he's having a really hard day and if I could just help him like in fact maybe I could just get a couple toothpicks because there's a little opening and he can't get out but I would think if I could just open it up and help him he'd come out and he'd see me and he would think like I was his dad and then he'd come back to visit me sometimes you know and we'd have like a relationship and I, I mean I wanted to help him but here's what I didn't know when I was a kid that you probably know right if you help a butterfly out of its chrysalis that butterfly will never fly because the struggle to get out of the chrysalis is what makes its wings strong enough to carry its body through the air. And what James is saying is trials are kind of like that for the believer. You see, the fight of our faith, just the fight itself makes us stronger. And this is why James says that we can count it all joy because of what it produces. We could put it this way. Second thing he's saying is this, that spiritual toughness, we're gonna say produces maturity. So here's what he says in verse four as he's wrapping this up. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now this is again very different than how many of us go through life. I find people like to blame their immature activities and actions on their trials. All right, so for, for instance, if you've, if you've ever heard someone say, you know, I'm sorry I have such a bad attitude. It's not my fault. It's my trial. It's my situation. It's this tough thing. know right, if you've ever heard people like blame their, well, I know I shouldn't have said that, but you know, it's because I'm going through this thing. Or I know I, I, I shouldn't have made that decision. Or I know I shouldn't have done that. Or I know I shouldn't have compromised my integrity. You ever... Hear people do that, like they'll say, "Well, I know it was wrong, but I couldn't help it because I'm going through this trial, through this this hard thing." What James is saying is, faith actually changes all of that. That faith means we trust God, and when we trust God, we He gives us the ability to walk through trials in a different way, where we don't blame what we do on the trial, but instead we begin to reflect at the words of Christ, the actions of Christ, the love and integrity, and we actually begin to grow. And what he says here, in fact, is he says that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Commentators like to call this dynamic maturity. What they mean is this, that we haven't arrived, but we're getting there. But we're moving towards this place of, of perfection. And what James is saying is something that, you know, we don't often like to hear. What he's saying is this, spiritual maturity doesn't come through comfortable living. It doesn't come through being a spiritual spectator. It doesn't come even through listening to a podcast or even listening to a sermon. What we are getting in here is not spiritual maturity. What we are getting in here is kind of the raw materials that we need so that we can go out and experience God and faith in the real world. But this is not the test. I know by now it might start to feel like a test, but this is not the test itself. Spiritual maturity comes from trusting God in the midst of trials. And what that builds is a spiritual toughness. Now sadly, many Christians don't want spiritual toughness. They don't want to go through trials. What they want is to pray a prayer, to get their golden ticket to heaven, to have God take away all their problems, to keep their head down, and to get to heaven one day. But what James tells us is different. What we need is to grow up. And the reason we often don't count the things we're going through as joy is because we don't understand why spiritual maturity is so vitally important. We don't understand it until we need it and we don't have it and then we're frustrated. And then we end up in situations where, you know, Uh, You're in a situation and you don't have the wisdom you need to make a good decision. And the reason you don't have that wisdom is because you've consistently taken the easy way out of trials instead of walking through them with God and you have not learned wisdom. I don't know how else to put it, but we end up shallow people. We are shallow. We have knowledge, but we have not experienced that. We find ourselves going through trials and our perspective is awful. It's terrible. It's hurtful. Have, have, you ever, have you ever seen someone else who's going through a really challenging trial and they have this great perspective? And have you ever thought like, I don't even know how they can do that. Well, I think what James would say is, it, it happens As we walk through today's trials trusting God and God gives us, he builds us a little more and builds us a little more until we become that kind of person. But oftentimes because we avoid trials and push back on trials, we find ourselves in a place where we need maturity and we don't have it. And we're frustrated. It's why oftentimes we lack the peace that we wish we could have in stressful situations. Why do we lack peace? Because every time God has put us in a situation where we could learn to trust him, we have not trusted him. We have pushed back on him and we're not growing our faith. We're not growing our... I know many of us think that peace is just this magical thing. We can ignore God and ignore faith, but when we ask for it, God will just magically give it to us and yet our experience alone tells us that's not true. What's missing? It's walking through trials with faith. It's when we find ourselves not having the words we wish we had to help someone who needs helpful words. You ever been, you ever been thinking that you're, what, somebody's going through something, someone needs some good words, and you have nothing to offer them? Because we're shallow. We lack a deep sense of God's grace in our own life. I mean, grace is something we can study, but you know how you really, really experience God's grace? You begin to walk through life by faith. And then what happens? You begin to experience the grace of God as you do dumb thing after dumb thing and God is there and walks you through it and you learn to have faith and you learn to grow. But here's what happens. Here's what happens when we are shallow and we don't understand God's grace. The number one thing that happens when we don't understand God's grace is we tend to be very immature people who make very immature decisions. But the second thing is and the big thing is we find it nearly impossible to to forgive other people. And I've said this before, but the number one topic I get more pushback on than anything is when I preach on forgiveness. And I think a lot of it is because we are so shallow when it comes to understanding God's grace. We are driven by insecurity. We are materialistic. We are shallow. Why? Because we refuse to trust God and count it all joy. We refuse to walk by faith instead of by sight. We are going to stay focused on that crack in the windshield and we are going to obsess on it and that's going to be the thing we do. And we miss the opportunity to grow spiritually. So how can we count it all joy? How can we, how can we trust God? Well, Paul puts it this way. He says, here's what you need to know. And we know And this is what we know. We know that for those who love God. And by the way, loving God here is synonymous with trusting God. In the context of what Paul's talking about, it's synonymous. For those who love God, those who trust God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so what James says is, when I trust God, When I have faith, I can face trials with joy, not because the trial itself is joyful, but because of the God who is above it all. This is what James is going to say again and again and again faith works. It works in everyday life and it works in trials. It desires spiritual growth and Christ-like character, and it responds to trials with faith that's reflected in its attitude and words and reactions. Warren Wiersbe uh, said this, and I thought he put it really well. Our values determine our evaluations. Isn't that true? The way that we evaluate things we're going through always depends on what we value. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. And if we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. Well, I want to, uh, I want to close by um, sharing a, uh, a story with you. And this is uh, from a book called The Power of Moments. And so th- this book is actually, uh, not a Christian book, but uh, he's going to tell a story in here that I want to read to you. Um, it's about a guy named Eugenio Kelly. And uh, great story here it says Eugenio Kelly devotes his moving memoir Chasing Daylight which by the way there's a movie called Chasing Daylight that's not the same as a memoir Um, he devotes his moving memoir Chasing Daylight to making sense of an extraordinary statement that begins he begins his book this way he says I was blessed I was told I had three months to live in the last week of May 2005 O'Kelly's doctors told him that he suffered from a rare cancer Three malignant tumors the size of golf balls had grown in his brain and the doctor said there was no cure Now at the time O'Kelly was 53 years old The CEO of KPMG the four billion dollar 20,000 employee accounting firm He had a wife Corrine and two daughters His younger daughter Gina 14 was still in school Awaiting summer break and Gina would likely go back to school in the fall without a father This is what he wrote All the plans that Karina and I had made for our future had to be junked. And the quicker I scrapped plans for a life that no longer existed, the better. I needed to come up with new goals and come up with them fast. So on June 8th, two weeks after the diagnosis, he stepped down as leader of KPMG. And then he did what came naturally. He made a plan. He said this. What can I say? I'm an accountant not only by trade, but by nature as well. I, I did not know how to do anything unplanned, including dying. So one night at his dining room table, he drew five concentric circles. It was a map of his relationships. His family was in the center circle, and in the outer ring were more distant relationships like business partners. And he resolved to what he called unwind his relationships, uh, and to beautifully resolve them, and to work systematically from the outer circle to the middle. He reasoned that as his disease progressed, he'd want more uninterrupted time with the people who were closest, especially his family. So he kept the unwinding simple at first a phone call, an email exchange, sharing a memory or mutual appreciation. And he was careful not to let the conversations grow too sad or too morbid. He wanted them to be special. Now, the third and fourth circles were composed of closer friends. And colleagues and he met with these people in person. O'Kelly wanted their encounters to be what he said full of pleasure and pleasures. Sometimes they shared an exquisite meal together, other times they met in a beautiful place, maybe sitting at a park bench by the water, or strolling through Central Park. And in these unwindings, O'Kelly and his friends swapped stories and talked about life and he expressed his gratitude for their friendship. And he came to think of these as what he called perfect moments and his mission as he saw it was to create as many of these Perfect moments as he could in his dwindling time As the summer went on he began to spend more time with his closest friends and family and he had moved from the uh, All the way to the center circle. He said goodbye to his sisters Rose and Linda And then in August, he and Corrine and Gina went to stay at their second home in Lake Tahoe. And by then, O'Kelly had endured a regimen of radiation intended to shrink his tumors and earn him a few more weeks of life. And he was very weak. In late August, his mother and brothers flew to Tahoe for the weekend. It would be their final unwinding visit. On Sunday, which was a beautiful day, they took a boat out onto the lake. And O'Kelly wrote this. After we were out there for a while, I took my mother's hand and walked her to the front of the boat to talk. It was just the two of us. And I told her I was in a great place. I told her I would see her in heaven. Both being people of deep faith, she was, she was comfortable with that. It was a perfect day. I felt complete. I was spent, but I was, I was complete. The evening after his mother and brother left, Corrine lay in his arms on the couch and she sensed that he was starting to go. And She commented on his absence and he said, you're gonna have to take over now. I've done everything I can do. About two weeks later on September 10th, 2005, O'Kelly died of a pulmonary embolism. And what O'Kelly realized in the shadow of of his final days was the extraordinary power of a moment. This is what he wrote. I experienced more perfect moments and more perfect days in two weeks than I had in the last five years or that I probably would have in the next five years had my life continued the way that it was going before my diagnosis. Now look at your own calendar. Do you see any perfect days ahead? Or could they be hidden and you have to find a way to unlock them? If I told you to create 30 perfect days, could you do it? How long would it take you? Would it take 30 days? Six months? 10 years? Never? I felt like I was living a week and a day, a month and a week, a year and a month. And then the writer of this book wraps it up this way. He says, Now take a second look at the beginning of O'Kelly's memoir, especially those final two words. He said, I was blessed. I was told I had three months to live. That opportunity to live is why he felt blessed. Shouldn't we share his zeal for moments that matter? We may have more time to live than he did, but should that be a reason to put them off? See, this is the great trap of life. One day rolls into the next and a year goes by and we still haven't had that conversation we always meant to have. Still haven't spent time with that person. Still haven't asked for unforgiveness. Still haven't created that peak moment for our students or our coworkers. We walk a flat land that could have been a mountain range. And it's not easy to sta- snap out of this tendency. It took a terminal illness for Gino Kelly to do it. What would it take to motivate you to do it? Now, my goal here isn't to make you walk out of here thinking, I need to create some perfect moments. I want to pull back and close with this thought. Like, if you were faced with a trial like that, that's my question. If you found out you had three months to live, would you be prepared to, To react as he did? Would you be someone who has walked through smaller trials? Followed God by faith through those trials? So that God could prepare you? So that when you got to that place, instead of whining and griping and complaining, you, your desire, your maturity would say, I want to be a blessing to other people. I want to exit this world well. How can you get to that place? How can you get to the place so that you will react like that? The answer is this. Don't worry about tomorrow, trust God today. That's how you get there, trust God today. So here's my question, what are you facing today that you could trust him with? What are you dealing with in life today that you could count it all joy, that you could walk with God by faith through that? Not whining, not complaining, not obsessing, but trusting God. What is it, what are you going through today? What could you give to God today? So that he can grow you. Take you that small step forward today. Here's what James says one more time. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with today, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, spiritual toughness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and you may be complete, lacking in nothing. Let me pray for us.